Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is the Naked Genetics Podcast, taking a look inside your genes. From the beauty of a sunset or the ugliness of war to the smile on a loved one's face, our eyes bring us all kinds of information about the world around us. Now researchers are working to develop new therapies for people who've lost this precious sense. The problem with most neuronal cells is that we're very bad at regenerating our neurons and that goes for the photoreceptors as well. So once they've died, we're not able to replace them. Plus, smelling elephants, marmoset twins and an all-seeing gene of the month. This is the Naked Genetics Podcast for July 2014 with me, Dr. Kat Arney, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. Poets may claim our eyes are the windows to the soul, but to scientists they're an important way of sensing the world around us by detecting light, or seeing, as we usually call it. To find out more about how organisms, including humans, detect light through special cells called photoreceptors, I spoke to Rob Lucas, Professor of Neurobiology at Manchester University. There are lots of different mechanisms that organisms use to sense light, probably because it's, it's, it's going to be amongst the oldest sensory systems that organisms evolved. But if we concentrate on animals, and particularly on vertebrates, then there is a, um, a, a particular class of proteins called opsins that they use to detect light. And these are um, proteins that bind a derivative of vitamin A called retinaldehyde. And it's actually that retinaldehyde that absorbs the light. And the opsin protein has the really clever job of detecting that light absorption and setting in chain a biological response. And the rods and cones are packed full of opsins that are used to absorb light. And until about 10, 15 years ago, it was assumed that they were the only cells in the retina that contained opsin, and they were the only cells, therefore, that were capable of responding to light. And so that's still the major way in which mammals detect light. But we've been interested in this new sort of cell type in the retina that also contains opsins, and we only found discovered them yeah about a decade ago or something like that and how did you find these so that was work not just from my own lab but from various labs around around the world um and my own contribution to it was we when i was working as a postdoc in russell foster's lab we generated mice that lacked rod and cone photoreceptors and therefore by all rights should have been completely blind but showed that they still had some light responses and that implied that there was something else in the retina capable of responding to light. And then a scientist at Brown University in the US called David Burson recorded electrophysiologically from some of the retinal ganglion cells, these are the cells that form the optic nerve, that, um, and showed that they were capable of responding directly to light. And that was the first description of this new sort of photoreceptor. 
that must have been incredible to think that there's something as, as fundamental as the eye and there's this whole kind of extra layer that we never knew about. Yeah, it's been really, really exciting. And, and certainly at the time when, when I started working in this field, there was huge reluctance from vision scientists to countenance the idea that they might have missed something. In a way, it's a quite a nice illustration of um, general themes, I think, in biology going forward. And that is that the more you look at things in detail, the more you find rare events that are nonetheless really, really important. So this sort of photoreceptor in a human retina, there might be, you know, about a thousand of these photoreceptor cells compared to many millions of rods and cones. So if you were to just as a first approximation, say, where does photoreception occur in a mammalian retina? The answer is in rods and cones. But that's not to say it doesn't also help else, it doesn't also occur elsewhere. And just because there are so few of these other cells doesn't mean they aren't important for us. So there's a lot to be discovered by looking at rare events. And of course, this begs the question what are they doing there? <laughs> Why are they important? <laughs> Our knowledge of that is really developing, um, but. Uh, their really widely accepted roles are to provide our brain with a signal of the overall amount of light there is in the environment. So why do we need that? Um, the most uh, obvious answer to that question is that we use it to adjust our physiology and behaviour according to time of day. And so we use the output of these cells to uh, synchronise our biological clocks to time of day. So when you fly to New York, it's light as detected by these new photoreceptors, which tells you that it's daytime when you're expecting it to be night and therefore adjusts your clock. But also there are direct effects of light. So light, there are alerting effects of light, and these come probably mainly from these, these retinal ganglion cells. Waking you up, yeah. Yeah, waking you up increasing your body temperature, changing hormone levels, from that to very simple reflex responses. So, for example, the pupil light reflex. Many people will be aware that when the light's bright, your pupil is small. Well, that's down to these ganglion cells as well. And what do we know about the way that these unusual photoreceptors are working? Do they have similar molecules in them to the rods and cones? They also use opsins, but it's a particular sort of opsin, and it's an opsin called melanopsin. And it's called melanopsin because it was first discovered in the um, dermal melanophores, so these are the skin pigment cells of amphibia. And so it's involved in changing skin pigmentation in amphibia depending on light intensity. And it's this opsin, which is in in those skin cells of toads and frogs, that is then also present in our in our eyes than we use to detect light. And how widely across the animal kingdom do you find these unusual opsins? And and are they always used for these detecting general levels of light and then doing something in response? So it turns out that actually mammals are unusually boring in terms of the range of opsins that we have. So we have, in addition to our rod and cone opsins, we have melanopsin, and we use that, as as I've described. If you look outside mammals and other vertebrates... They have melanopsin, they have rod and conopsin. They also have lots of other sorts of opsins that they use for exactly this purpose. And very commonly, 
those options will be found in places other than the eyes. So we've talked about the amphibian skin, but also deep within the brain of many of these other animals, they have photoreceptors, which means that if you were to remove their eyes, for example, they would still synchronize biological clocks to local time, still adjust their behavior according to light-dark cycles. That's like some freaky third eye. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so the the third eye, parietal eye in in lizards, is obviously photoreceptive, but then they also have pineal glands, which we have a pineal, but it's not photosensitive. But in these other organisms, it, it is photosensitive. The more that you dig around in these guys, the more you find light sensitivity, to the extent that if you take, for example, a fish heart and put it in a culture dish, you can get it to respond to light. Why on earth are they so widespread then through evolution? One of the first pieces of advice I I had when starting studying biology is never ask a why question, (laughs) because we can never know the answer. But I'm going to answer it anyway. And of course, it's complete speculation. The question of why they're so widespread, um, I guess the answer to that must be that this light information is valuable for lots of different parts of our bodies, right? So... um, the fact that you have photoreceptors in the heart is because the sort of level of activity that you have in the day and night is different. And so it's it's useful for the heart to know what time of day it is. And if it can do that by having its own light measurement system, why wouldn't it? At least if you're a fish. (laughs) At least if you're a fish. But even if you were a mammal, why why is that not the case also for a mammal? Um, and uh, so obviously there are very much lots of small mammals that light would penetrate their body just fine. Um, and so you can break it down into those, the, the two sort of questions, related questions. Why is it valuable for a fish, let's say, and why isn't it valuable for a mammal? And I think we can say why it might be valuable for a fish. Why it's not valuable for a mammal is harder to answer. And the current best guess on that is that it's actually, it's a it's a... It's a reflection of our evolutionary history. So mammals, as far as one can tell, were nocturnal for tens of millions of years of our evolution. And when they're nocturnal, there's not much light around to be exposed to. And as a result, lots of these light-sensitive proteins are lost because they're not really... There's the, the light doesn't reach the heart of a nocturnal animal as much as it would for a diurnal animal, for example. And so... Lots of those photoreceptors were lost, and that's why we don't have them now, even though many mammalian species could, if they wanted to, have photoreceptors outside the eyes. That was Professor Rob Lucas from the University of Manchester. In the news this month was a new study in the journal Nature Communications from Professor Robert Plowman from King's College London and his colleagues, showing that gene variations linked to reading ability in children are also linked to math skills. I asked him to explain a bit more about the motivation behind the study and what it might mean. What I've been interested in is the extent to which the same genes affect different traits. And it might be surprising to listeners to know that diverse cognitive abilities, mental abilities like spatial ability and verbal ability, memory, as well as learning abilities like reading and math, are all highly heritable. That means there's a lot of genetic influence. The reason why one person differs from another, the majority of that answer is genetics. So you get it from your mum, your dad? Yep, you inherit it. In inherited DNA differences in the DNA sequence. So it's people might be surprised to know, but it's no longer interesting to ask that question, is it heritable? Because every single study over 
decades has shown that it is heritable. So we're trying to go beyond heritability. And one of the most interesting questions is to ask, are the same genes affecting different traits? Because you might expect something like reading is very different from math because the cognitive processes involved in doing math and reading would seem to be so different. So you would expect that although they're both heritable, different genes would affect the two skills. So you've got like a maths gene that means you can add, subtract, juggle numbers in your head and a reading gene that means you can kind of focus and understand words. Yeah, except most definitely what's come out of the molecular genetic work on DNA is it isn't one gene. We're talking about hundreds or maybe thousands of genes of very small effect. So the question's more quantitative. To what extent are the different genes that affect reading overlapping with the genes that affect math. And the punchline is that although you might expect very different genes to be involved, in fact, most of the genes are the same. How did you actually find this out, that the the abilities in reading and maths are heritable in this way and that they do seem linked to similar genes? The cool thing about this study, it was one of the first to use a totally different method that doesn't use twins or siblings or family members. It uses unrelated individuals and genome-wide DNA similarity. So there are these chips that estimate, they, they genotype your DNA on something the size of a postage stamp, and it gets a million of these DNA markers. So we can use those million DNA markers to say, are you and I a little more similar than me and someone else? And then to say, are we a little more similar in our reading ability than other people? So instead of identical versus fraternal twins, pair by pair for thousands of pairs, we ask, are the people who are genetically more similar at a DNA level, are they more similar on a trait like reading or on the covariance, the relationship between reading and math? And with 3,000 unrelated individuals in our sample, that gives you nearly 5 million pair-by-pair comparisons, if you see what I mean. So it's very powerful as well. So you're finding that out of all these people, there are relationships between uh, reading and maths ability and certain parts of the genome. Is it possible to say, right, ah, it's it's that gene, it's that gene, it's that gene, it's that gene? What can what can this tell us? Yeah, well, that's the, that's the big... Um, prize. People want to discover the specific genes that account for this heritability. The problem is throughout the life sciences, biomedical sciences, complex traits like these and common disorders, not rare single gene disorders, they're influenced by many, many genes of small effect. And so throughout the life sciences, it's been a major disappointment that although many things are heritable, it's very, very difficult to find the specific genes involved because they each have such small effects. So, well, we're going to continue trying to find the genes. There's a lot that's still happening. For example, right now the big development is sequencing all three billion base pairs of DNA. So that's what people are doing now. That's the end of the story in terms of DNA sequence variation because you've got all three billion base pairs, not a million DNA markers, but three billion sequences of DNA. So that's one direction that things are going. But um, I think just at the level we're at now... If there are any parents who still think children are a blob of clay that you just mold to be what you want them to be, tabula rasa, the blank slate, they might pay attention to these data and and realize that kids, you know, aren't just molded to be what you want them to be. And maybe as parents and teachers, we need to recognize that children differ even very early in life and maybe respect those differences to a greater extent. Professor Robert Plyman. And now it's time for a roundup of this month's genetics news. 
When you think about nature's champion sniffers, you probably think of dogs, whose noses are incredibly sensitive. But a new study published in the journal Genome Research shows that they may have competition. Researchers compared the number of olfactory receptor genes in 13 different mammalian species, these are the molecules in the nose that detect different odours, and discovered that African elephants have the largest number, clocking in at around 2,000. This is twice as many as dogs and five times more than humans. As part of the study, the scientists also discovered more than 10,000 olfactory receptor genes in total across all the species, but that each animal's repertoire was pretty much unique. Only three receptor genes were shared across all 13 species. This diversity has arisen thanks to hundreds of genes being copied and lost during evolution and highlights the differences in the sense of smell across the different animals. An international research team has unveiled the complete genome sequence of the common marmosette, a small monkey found in South America, publishing their work in the journal Nature Genetics. It's the first genome from the so-called New World monkey, which is further away in evolutionary terms than primates such as gorillas, chimps and humans, helping to shed light on primate evolution and biology. One of the most interesting aspects of marmosets is that they tend to consistently give birth to twins, unlike humans and other primates. The scientists discovered that a gene called WFIKKN1 seems to be playing an important role in twinning and might help to explain multiple pregnancies in humans too. The team also discovered intriguing differences in growth hormone genes, which may explain their small body size, as well as a number of interesting microRNAs, small molecules that help to control gene activity. The researchers hope that the new genome sequence will open up new research avenues, particularly related to reproduction, which could shed light on human health and disease. And if you want to find out more about those studies, the references are on our website. That's thenakedscientist.com slash genetics. You're listening to the Naked Genetics podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. Still to come, we'll be finding out how to rid the world of mosquitoes by messing with their sex and wallowing with our gene of the month. But first, it's time to return to the topic of sight. At University College London's Institute of Ophthalmology, Dr Rachel Pearson and her team are developing ways to restore sight to the blind by replacing damaged photoreceptors in the eye. I started by asking her why we can't just grow new photoreceptors ourselves. The problem with most neuronal cells, uh, certainly in the, the in mammals, um, including humans, is that we're very bad at regenerating our neurons. And that goes for the photoreceptors as well. So once they've, uh, once they've degenerated, once they've died, uh, we're not able to replace them. There, there are certainly other animals that can regenerate. So, for example, um, fish and a lot of the lower vertebrates. Um, so frogs, fish, newts, all of those sorts of animals are, have an amazing capacity to regenerate. And in the case of the eye, you can you know, ablate large areas of the eye and they will actually grow a new retina. You, you can poke them in the eye and it'll you, grow back. You can poke them in the eye and they'll get a new one. <laughs> Sadly, it's not the same for us. Uh, we're, we're much <laughs> worse at doing that. So if we can't grow back our, our photoreceptors, how are you and your team trying to counteract some of this, this degeneration? that happens so there are there are various strategies that are, are being looked at obviously there are one is that you try and get in there first and you correct the genetic defects so that would be gene therapy um, and then there are cell therapy strategies which is the idea that we've lost those cells can we put them back um, can we find a, a suitable cell type that will do the same job um, and then related to that is, could we actually try and persuade our own retina to regrow and repair itself? 
Um, but coming back to the, the cell-based therapies, uh, which is the area that I'm primarily working on at the moment, uh, we're interested in trying to find, identify appropriate sources of donor cells that we can literally try, physically transplant back into the patient's eye. And then the hope is that those cells would then migrate to the right place, they turn into the right cell that we're interested in, the photoreceptor. Um, but then they also need to do quite a few other things. They need to wire up, so they need to form new connections to, to those next um, cells in line, and they need to be able to detect light and pass those signals on. Where are you with this kind of research? What have you done so far? A lot of our, all of the work to date is still um, very much in the preclinical stages, you know, when we're not at the clinical trial stage yet. Um, but what we have managed to do is demonstrate that it's possible to take cells um, from one eye um, and you essentially dissociate them. So you turn them into single cells, you're not putting a, a piece of tissue in. Um, but you can take immature cells from a developing retina and you can dissociate them into a single cells and then transplant those into the back of the eye of a recipient animal. And that uh, recipient has a degeneration, a retinal degeneration, so its photoreceptors are dying. And if you transplant those cells in, these cells manage to migrate into the uh, degenerating retina. They can turn into the right cell type, into the photoreceptors, and they can also form new connections. And we've then been able to go on to show that those cells are able to function as a normal photoreceptor, so they are light-sensitive, they detect light, and they turn this into an electrical signal, and this signal is then passed down both through the retina but then also all the way up to the brain. Um, sounds good. It's it it sounds good. It is good. <laughs> it was um, no. It's it's very encouraging. So that's where we got on that side. One of the issues with it is that those cells that we identified as being really good at doing this um, come from a period in development that would make it very difficult for us to translate it into the human situation because it comes during the, the equivalent in humans would be towards the end of the first trimester, second trimester. So this is fetal tissue that So you this need, would have yeah. then have been fetal tissue, which obviously has ethical and practical implications. So we wanted to then think about an alternative donor source. And so that's then led us onto stem cells themselves. And we're now trying to take um, embryonic stem cells and basically grow eyes in a dish. These are the stem cells from the very, very earliest time of development, sort of yeah. little ball of cells when they first start get going. How do you then turn them in a dish into these photoreceptor <laughs> cells? Uh, that would be giving the secrets away. Um, it's uh, Essentially, what you're trying to do is recapitulate normal eye development. And we're very lucky working in the eye because it's a wonderful model and it's been studied for you know, many, many years. So we actually know a lot about how the eye normally develops. We know a lot about the signalling pathways um, that turn a cell that could go and be an eye or equally it could go in liver and... Um, kidney or anything else, we know what the signals are during embryonic development that say, actually, no, go, don't do that, go and be an eye, or go and be a, a cell within the eye. And so we're able to start to use these and, and introduce the same signaling pathways in the culture dish. So we're, we're trying to stepwise um, turn this cell from being an undifferentiated st embryonic stem cell into a cell that knows it's going to become a retinal cell, and then more specifically, it knows it's going to become one of these photoreceptors that we have found to be really good for transplanting. And that's using embryonic stem cells, which still you require a source of embryos for them. Sure. Is there any interest in using uh, the new kind of re reprogrammed stem cells, the uh, inducible pluripotent stem mm -hmm. cells we hear so much about? Yeah. So there's absolutely there's interest in those. Um, they 
we're we're investigating them as well. We're very interested to to understand their potential. Um, They have the advantage that obviously you could take them from uh, an an autologous source, which means it's come from the patient themselves. Um, So you remove the ethical issues um, associated with embryonic stem cells. Um, The problem with those, obviously, is that as an iPS cell, if it comes from a patient with a genetic mutation that causes retinal degeneration, any cell that we turn into retina from that patient will still have that retinal degeneration. So we can make new photoreceptors, but they will still be affected in the same way. Um, So we have to think about that when we're we're using iPS cells, and we may need to go and correct that genetic defect in vitro before we use those cells for cell transplantation. So it's not completely straightforward um, to use an iPS cell, but they're they're still very interesting sources. And, And I think at the moment the field is at a point where we still need to investigate both and and look to see you know the relative pros and cons of both of them with the kind of the molecules the pathways you're discovering that turn embryonic stem cells into photoreceptors are there similar pathways that could be reactivated within the eye to Mm -hmm. to make new photoreceptors grow in situ in the eyeball yeah that's a a really interesting strategy and it's one that um that that i'm i'm interested in i think it's still very much in its infancy at the moment as, as an idea so there's the idea at the moment that um there's a population of cells called muller glial cells and these are sort of support cells in the eye um they in lower vertebrates can de-differentiate, which means that they can kind of take a step backwards developmentally. So um, they can become the cells that proliferate, that generate new neurons. So um, they can help towards the, the repair process. So the idea might be that in humans, maybe we can do the same thing. We don't know yet, um, but the idea is that um, we might be able to turn these molar cells back a step and, and allow them to re-enter the cell cycle and generate new photoreceptors. But it, that's very much at its infancy at the moment. It sounds like there's a lot of interest, a lot of excitement, a lot of ideas, but presumably also some very big challenges. What do you see as the, maybe the key challenge that needs to be overcome, if, if you can pick one, <laughs> um, to, to take this, really take this forward? Mm. There are, as you said, there are there are many challenges, um, and so it's it's tough to to know which one is going to be the defining one. I think at the moment, so much of our work has been based um, on animal models, and uh, particularly on the rod transplantation. So, as I mentioned, those are the ones with um, that we're interested in uh, that we use to detect low light levels for us as humans obviously the really important thing is our cones. You know, we rely so heavily on our vision to to navigate. Um, during the day that I think the the most important challenge really is to know whether or not this strategy would work for cones. Um, So that's something that we're putting an awful lot of time and effort into at the moment to try and see if we can transplant cones and restore co-mediated vision. It must be really fantastic when you can see that you can transplant these cells and, and that they will work and that they will send signals. It's difficult to cast too far into the future but it's it's really nice to think of maybe in sort of 15 20 years time that there are viable cell therapies that would Mm. be great it would be great it would be absolutely amazing and that's obviously what keeps all of us going and we we really do hope that this this strategy will will come to fruition that was dr rachel pearson from ucl and now it's time for our question of the month listener lorne henry says I heard a talk by someone who's specialising in trying to rid the world of the malaria mosquito or of the disease, and I had an idea about it. If these mosquitoes could be made all one sex, then bingo, 
So could skewing the sex ratio get rid of mozzies? In fact, it's a great idea and it's exactly what Dr Nikolai Winbickler and his team at Imperial College London are trying to do. Well, the idea is if you progressively shift the sex ratio of a population towards males and there are fewer and fewer females in the population, then the overall size of the population will decrease up to a point where the population cannot sustain itself anymore and will actually crash. What did you do to try and skew this this sex ratio? So we introduced into the mosquito a gene which essentially destroys the X chromosome. As you know, as in humans, so also in mosquitoes, there are two types of sperm produced by males, sperm that carry the Y chromosome and sperm that carry the X chromosome. The sperm that carry the Y chromosome produce sons, the sperm that carry the X chromosome produce daughters. So we found a way to specifically eliminate the sperm that carry the X chromosome so that only the sperm that carry the Y chromosome would be functional and would make it. These males produce only sons. This is a very promising technology, but there are still many, we're still many steps away to rolling this out. We have both technical hurdles to overcome still, but also have to make sure that all aspects of you know, biosafety, safety, ethical concerns and regulatory concerns would be addressed before we uh, go any further with this. The next step is to take these mosquitoes and test them at a larger scale. We have tested this technology in, in small population cages, but we have a facility in Italy where we have larger cages that are more field-like controlled environment, and there we want to test this technology to see how it performs. Thanks to listener Lorne Henry and Dr Nikolai Winbichler, and there's a longer version of that interview on the Naked Scientist website. If you've got any questions about genes, DNA and genetics, just email them to me at genetics at thenakedscientist.com. And finally, it's time for our gene of the month. And in keeping with our theme of vision, it's PAX6. Known as PAX6 in humans and eyeless in fruit flies, but found in a wide range of different animals, including mammals, insects and fish. This gene is a master controller, telling a developing embryo exactly where to grow an eye. Impressively, the PAX6 gene from mice can be put into fruit flies and will direct them to grow fruit fly eyes. And, as might be expected, any faults in such an important gene lead to major problems with eye development, so researchers are studying the gene in detail to gain insights into why some children are born blind. That's all for now. I'll be back next month taking a look at the genetics of ageing. If you've got any questions or feedback, just email me, genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can also get in touch through the main Naked Scientist Facebook page or tweet me, at Naked Genetics. Every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is on iTunes and available online at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll see you next month for another peek inside your genes.